a little bit more rough in the end times, I would say, than the purchase than the perch of oh my goodness, the church of Smyrna. The church of Smyrna, they have it rough now for ten days. It's gonna be crazy, insane persecution. It's gonna be rough. Worse than they've ever had. But I would say as far as an eternal plan, their hearts are in the right place. They have they're gonna have a higher percentage from that church show up in um, heaven. Pergamum, they're going to have a harder time because they think they're doing what's right. And God says, hey, it's time to shape up or ship out. Anytime Jesus comes with a two-edged sword, there's a winnowing effect. What do I mean by that? It means that God's coming to separate the sheep from the goats. There's coming to, um, in this case, set apart his remnant. Okay? And we'll get into that in just a little bit here. Let's read Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. The church of Pergamum. To this letter, write this letter to the, to the angel of the church of Pergamon. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Two-edged sword is what I have there in the outline first. Jesus is described as a two-edged sword, this is the second time we see this in Revelation. We see it in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, that his tongue is a two-edged sword. We see it again here, that he has a two-edged sword as well. And I think what you will find interesting about that, that most likely it is God's word that is that, that divider, that is doing the separation, is sharp, it is here to separate. Here he has it with him, whether it's um, on his person or it's part of his person before, or maybe he envelops the sword, we don't know. But we know that God's word is the sword. sword. And when it speaks of God's word from his mouth, it's confirmed in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, For the word of God is alive and powerful, It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between the soul and the spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. That is why Jesus encourages us to take communion. Remember these things. Remember what I've done. Remember that you've been separate from this world and you need to get back to that holiness, to that nature that I have shown you through my spirit. And when we clean our hearts before the Lord, that's what communion allows us to remember, what the sacrifice that Christ did for us in the first place. The two-edged sword would be about division. We see it in Matthew chapter 25, with the sheep from the goats. And Jesus came to separate his remnant out, like he spoke of in Luke chapter 12, verse 50 and 52. It says, Do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I've come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, two in favor of me and two against, or two in favor of me, 
and three against. And of course, we know that as when God comes as a God of peace, a God of understanding, a God of his word, he also comes with a God of truth. And truth can be very divisive. It can be very hard because it's a hard line in the sand that he draws and people have to make a choice for or against that truth. And that's the division we see. And we'll we'll see that division all the way up till he comes again, won't we? We'll see that Christ is very divisive in this world because he doesn't belong to this world. He's above this world. He has conquered this world, and the person that was conquered is still in this world, which is Satan, and he is still trying to convince us that we need to follow our worldly, sinful nature. Let's move on to Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. It says, I know that you live in a city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my favorite wit- or my faithful witness, was martyred among you in Satan's city. A remnant. He's separating out a remnant. Christ will always separate out a remnant. He's done that from the beginning of time. He's done that with the children of Israel. When they turned away, he separated out and kept a remnant. Well, what is a remnant? Well, pastor, it's a piece of carpet you have when you left over when you get done uh, carpeting the room, right? Or it's those little patches of carpet you see in the carpet store, so you go see if that's the carpet you want. So you have a bounded piece of carpet, right? Or when you're in kindergarten, it's the carpets that you sit down on the floor with. You see where we use remnant a lot? At least in my life, is in carpet, right? But it, it is kind of like that. It's the piece left over is what we're focusing on. It's the piece left over. And God always leaves a remnant for himself, a, a piece that is holy, a piece that understands the truth, that thrives for justice, that is moving in sanctification and walking with the Lord. The Lord, God always leaves a remnant for himself, and this is not the last time we'll see this. We'll see this again in Revelation chapter 7 when he sets aside 144,000. I believe this is a remnant God has reserved for himself. And a lot of people in, in modern Revelation study, they'll say, well, that is the, the witnesses that will go out and they'll spread the word. It doesn't say that in Revelation. It doesn't say that in Revelation. It says they will be his witnesses. I think the fact that they are faithful will, will show that they are uh, pretty amazing, but they don't necessarily go out to profess across the whole world for that one last thing. No, it's there for God's because he said it's going to be and that's the way it's going to be. I don't, we don't know that much more detail other than that. Other than that, you're starting to get into speculation. You might be able to find something else, and we'll get that when we get to Revelation chapter 7. How do we identify a remnant? Well, in this passage, we can identify it three different ways. First, they were holding fast to his name. They identified as Christians. They identified as Christ's ones. And if you look at today in our culture, do you know it's becoming a fad amongst 
younger Christians, and it was a while for me, it took me a while, my brother finally said, um, set me straight in this, they don't want to identify, they want to identify with Christ, they don't want to identify with the name Christian. And I think there's some merit to this. Christian today, as we know it, has become under attack of being soft, of being loving with no consequences. To have, it's okay to sin, but not do anything about it. Well, there's a lot wrong with that statement, isn't there? There are consequences to our sins. There are consequences that we see. There's consequences when we get to heaven. There's consequences sometimes that pop up right away, isn't there? And so instead of backing away from the word Christian, I would encourage you, young people, old people, and all the ones in between, we don't have any old people here, praise God, right? We don't have young to identify yourself as Christians because, one, it's centuries-old name. And it is a blessing to be identified in Christ. Amen? And so we, as a church, when we are following him at his best, I sure hope that you identify yourself as Christian. One saved by grace. Because, yes, the church hasn't messed up, but sometimes that shows that Christ is even brighter in us because we know you're messed up. It must be something bigger than you. So they were not ashamed of the gospel. They held fast to his name. And it's like Paul says in Romans Chapter 1, verse 16, Paul declares, For I am not ashamed of the gospel about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. Christ was able to identify them by under great amount of pressure because he recognized they chose him before all other pagan idols and acts of worship. Where are they at? They're in Satan's throne room. That's what they called Pergamum, Satan's throne room. And they remained faithful. They chose him alone. They believed that the Lord was their God and that he was with them. They stood strong in the commandment of Joshua 1, 9 and said, This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do you ever get discouraged in your walk with the Lord? Why? You ever wonder why? Because I do. I get discouraged in my walk with the Lord. I do. When I evaluate why, it's because most of the time, I'd say 90, 95% of the time, I and focusing on my abilities. I am focusing on my side of the walk. I'm not focusing on God's side of the walk. Did he move? Did he walk away from me? No. Did he sin? Did he get prideful? 
No, I did. I got discouraged because I moved away from him, because I got overconfident, because I came to him in pride, and I, instead of coming to him in brokenness and giving him the joy, I chose happiness, which is a fleeting emotion, and I tried to ride that wave. And you can ride that wave for quite some time, can't you? You can ride your sorrows, you can ride your happiness for quite some time, but ultimately, when God's not in it, the joy fades, and we are left with our own abilities. And most of the time, maybe I would say 100% of the time, I'm to blame because God didn't move. He promises us that he's not going to move, right? So do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You're in front of the firing squad or your friends at school that think that, hey, you have to do this, or maybe it's people at work, and you believe that. I can't believe you believe that. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And sometimes it's not saying anything at all because I'm clenching my teeth because I got something to say. <laughs> but he says no. Right? Oh boy. I've had moments like this where God is directing me. Have you ever you ever been like let's see where the Lord wants us to go. Let's see where what the next step is. I need to walk in faith. He will be my strength. He will be my protection. When we started White Rose Fellowship Church, we didn't know where we were going to go. We didn't know where we were going to meet. And pretty soon we had a building and a, and a pastor and everything. And it was, God showed up in a mighty way. And then that same pastor challenged a group of people What's your spiritual gifts? I want to serve. I want to serve this community. How can I serve this community? I want to start a uh, food pantry. Crazy lady. <laughs> Amen. Do you know that God uses, chooses the crazy ones? He always chooses the crazy ones. They're half off the rocker. I know because I'm half crazy, Right? God does amazing things with people that are willing to step out in faith. What is God calling you to do? We must go. We must go. I've had moments like this where God says, trust and obey, and I'm like, God, that's a big drop-off there. You're asking me to walk across. And he's like, I know. I will hold you up with my mighty right hand, Where is God calling you to set the example and walk by faith? Maybe it's saying no to something at work that everybody else says yes to. Maybe it's saying no to the crowd when they say, this is acceptable. You have to do it this way, and you say, no, that's not what the Lord's told me to do. I need to walk away from that. That's not easy. The second is similar. They have not denied his faith. It says in Mark chapter 8, verse 
38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message and this adulterous and sinful ways, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus comes to take us back. Is he going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Or is he going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Who are you putting first? Are you putting you and your needs first, or are you putting God and his needs first? Well, how do I know I'm putting God's needs first? Well, if you're going to love God, you need to love others. And how do I know that I love God? By loving others. That is the practical application of loving God. It's putting others before yourself. It shows that God is in, in control of your life. So praise God that he sent his son Jesus Christ to set an example for us in this. In suffering on the cross, we, we see how to endure. I would ask, how are you suffering for Jesus? What's some of the ways that you suffer? Well, I don't. Well, it's time to start. Can you suffer in your schedule, in your time? Do you set time aside to pray daily? It's not convenient, Pastor. That's not convenient. Well, that's right. That can be a little bit of suffering. There's anxiety that builds with that sometimes. Are you suffering in your finances? Are you giving back to the Lord what he's already given to you? Are you willing to give of your talents? Well, how, how does that work? Well, there's a lot of labels over there in that food pantry, and if they're not faced just right, right? We need somebody to do that, right? We got somebody to do that, don't we? Praise God. We're using the talents that he's giving us. They can be little quirks, but God uses those, doesn't he? He uses the unusual to conquer the usual. Praise God for that. Amen, because we got an unusual pastor, that is for sure. He said it, not me, right? All right, he is our joy in the pain. He is our glory in the praise. And we've been, I've been pounding this over the last few weeks. If we can give him... The pain, we got to give him the glory as well. Maybe we can give him the glory. Well, then we need to give him the pain as well as, amen? And that is not easy to do. Usually you can do one or the other better. Third, Christ recognized Antipas, whom the Lord called my faithful martyr, who was slain among you. The Greek word Antipas means against all. Anti, and then pus means all. It's probably, I, I can't break that down for you. That's, that's the best I can get. I know anti, I can see that um, there. So against all, against the world, he went against the rulers of Pergamum, and he stood up against them and said, this is not right, and what do we know about him? Have we done any research on Antipas before? Well, if you do, you will find one little line in Revelation. We only know one thing. He died for the Lord. But isn't that enough? If, if 
that was written on your gravestone, right? He died for the Lord. Wouldn't that be enough? Isn't that giving everything? Dying to self, picking up your cross, and following Jesus. He died standing faithful in the name and the doctrine of Christ. Have you made a stand in, in your faith and your doctrine? What's it look like? What's it look like? How did it turn out? We always hear about the successes, right? Do we ever hear about the failures? Oh, I stood up for the Lord and man, I got my face beat in. Oh, that's a great story. Usually it doesn't stop there though, does it? It doesn't usually stop there because usually that is a test to see are you willing to stay faithful even through the beating? And they'll come back and say, what's different about you, man? What is different about you? I see something different and I, I don't know what it is, but there's something different. Remember the calling of the Lord. Look at Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 30. It says, If you want to be my disciple, which I desire to do that, I want to be the Lord's disciple. I'm paying attention. My ears perk up. My antennas are going off. I want to know what's it take. You must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Oh, man, this is a tough teaching. Okay, let's get in. Putting on our big kid pants now, and we're going for it. Your father, your mother, your wife, and children, your brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. It means Christ wants to be first in your life. He wants everything to filter through him. How do I love the unlovable like Jesus did? You do it sacrificially. They can't stand my guts. What do I do for them? I pray for them. I pray that God would soften their heart. You pray for their enemies. Love them. Those are the hard teachings of the Bible. How many people here love to pray for their enemies? I only do it in hope that one day they won't be my enemy and one day they will love Jesus like I love Jesus. Right? I have empathy for them. God breaks down my pride and then they aren't near as bad of an enemy. He dissolves those. If you not carry your own cross and if you don't carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. Don't begin the journey until you count the cost. Are you really going to be a Christian? Have you counted the cost? Do you have enough to finish the race? Build the building, in this case. But don't begin until you count the cost, for who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there, there's the person who started the building and can't afford to finish it. Jesus didn't take the sacrifice of following him lightly. Are you willing to suffer and die for your faith? I think to men, I think that might be easier. 
to have that moment to stand up for the Lord. We are willing to suffer and die. If someone were to come in here and say, are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And hold the gun to your head. If you say yes, you're going to die. For me personally, that's an easy. That's a no-brainer. Yep, I'm going to die today. On the other hand, what's not so easy, am I willing to die to myself daily? Am I willing to put others before me? Am I willing to serve my family before I serve myself? Christ wants us to die on a daily basis to self, to pick up our cross. That's the burden we bear. The burden we bear is to put ourselves down, to take up Christ, to put him on the mantle, put ourselves down on the floor and the dirt and the muck and the mire where we deserve and allow him to lift us up if he so chooses Whoa. Didn't know it was going to be this like this, Shana, when I came this Sunday either. <laughs> Are you willing to serve your family like that? Are you willing to serve your enemy like that? The persecuted church in China, I heard a story, I believe it was on WBNH. This is 88.5 Moody Radio affiliate. And I would encourage you guys to, to listen to that. If you want to grow in your faith, start listening to Christian radio, talk radio, okay? 88.5, got some really good preachers on there. Um, it's been really encouraging me, kind of getting back to my roots, been listening to that a lot. You're wondering why get good sermons, why I'm working on constructions, because we're listening to 88.5 um, a lot. And Brian's like, hey, I remember hearing that in the, during the week. Yeah, it's because I stole it from him. <laughs> Not really, but uh, I took a modified version maybe. One of the things I did hear on there was the persecuted church in China. Pastor was off to, to one of the churches. Many times in China, you, when you're a pastor, you, you have several different churches that you're giving the lesson to. And he's off giving the lesson on a, on a week-long journey and the the... Um, the police came and they find his wife there and they said that we heard that the pastor of these churches lives here and she convinced them that she was the pastor, which isn't uncommon in China for the woman to be the head pastor. And she convinced them so much that they took her and locked her up and she's, when she got out, says, well, why did you do that? So God's word can continue to go out into these churches. She was willing to sacrifice her marriage, sacrifice her own life, so God's word can go out. God hasn't even come close to calling us Americans to that yet. And I say yet. So I, I think we're getting there. What has God called you to do? A little sacrifice. Maybe it's a cup of coffee for your budget. Maybe it's, I don't know, fill in the blank. A cup of cold water. What are some of the cup of cold water moments that you can do to help the little ones so Christ can show brightly, brighter in your light? 
Jesus Christ is coming back to separate out his remnant. We are accountable for our actions, and we must truly evaluate our daily walk so we can be counted worthy to be called children of God. Let's continue on in Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. But I have a few complaints against you. I was like, during these, he always gives a, a little bit of good, and then he's like, but you got some, you got some work to do. You tolerate some among you who te- whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Now, we talked about the Nicolaitans a few weeks ago, so we're not going to get into that too much but just to mention them again, we have some warnings here to the church. They've done some really good things. They've stood up. Part of the church has stood up for the Lord. Part of the church has submitted to the culture. We get that in every church. And it can be different people at different times with different things. Right? That's why we have a group That's why we have a body to come alongside each other, to lift each other up. First, the church tolerated the false doctrine of Balaam. We see Balaam's story in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. The Israelites' enemies, they're afraid of them. They've heard the rumors. They've seen what they've done. And as they come out of the wilderness, Balak, a Moabite, tries to hire Balaam to curse the Israelites, which is kind of interesting because Moab, isn't that uh, Lot's descendants? I'm not 100% sure about that, but I'm pretty sure they come from Lot. So they're kind of relatives, I would think. And they're scared of the Israelites. Israelites are going to walk around this particular ones, but they make this stand here. Balaam says he can only do what God tells him. I can o- Doesn't that sound right? It sounds good. Everything that Balaam says in this passage of Numbers 22 through 24, go ahead and read it. It sounds right. It sounds like he is a prophet of God. I can only bless what God says to bless, and I can only curse what God says to curse. The problem with Balaam is he allows Balak to string him along with more blessings and more offerings and more things, and the offerings aren't going to the Lord, they're going to Balaam. Okay? So Balaam says he can only do what God tells him. God tells him not to bother the Israelites because I have blessed them. And God uses Balaam's donkey to say, hey, You need to turn around. The donkey crushes his leg against this rock, and Balaam starts to beat the donkey and beat the donkey until the donkey just lays down, and then God opens up his eyes, and what does he see? He sees the angel of the Lord with a sword about ready to slay Balaam. And he's like, why are you doing this? And the donkey talks to him. He says, because the angel of the Lord is about ready to slay you. God opens his eyes, and he sees what he's doing is wrong. And he turns around and goes home? No. He keeps going. Under, this under God's direction. 
because he knows, he knows Balaam's not going to change his ways. He says, but you better repeat everything I say. You better say everything I'm going to say. And God blesses the Israelites twice, and he curses Balak's people. He says what's going to happen to his people. Why does he do this? Because he's got to get paid. Balaam's God was his wallet, was his possessions. He wanted to do this. So what's the problem? He said he, he blessed God's people twice and he cursed Balak. What's the problem? What, what's ultimately? Well, he showed them. He's like, you want to get the Israelites to mess up? You want them to stumble and fall? You want to corrupt them? You do it with sexual immorality and you do it with um, bowing down to your idols. God separated them out and this is wrong. So he shows the Moabites how to destroy them from the inside out. And these three practices that are within the doctrine of Balaam. First is mixed marriages. And in that culture, God said that the Jewish people had to marry other Jewish people. And if they wanted to marry outside, the Jewish tribe was okay, but they had to become Jewish in practice. They had to submit to Jewish laws. They had to submit to the worshiping of God, Jehovah, and they had to get rid of all their idols. Does that happen? Most of the time it didn't. And so they start this thing, and they start eating things sacrificed to idols, which a lot of times leads right back to sexual immorality again. And the last one was they practiced the sexual sin of fornication, which means they just had sex wherever they wanted. They started this gigantic orgy right down in the presence of God. God's up on the mountain giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, and he's like, you got to get down there right now. I'm about ready to wipe them all out. And he's got these tablets. Do you know what he does with the first set of tablets? He breaks them. Right. Why does he do that? Is it because he's angry? Kind of. Yeah. The people, didn't, they, they couldn't hold up their end of the bargain. He smashes them. He says, there's no way. If I take these down to the people now, we're all going to die. Every one of them is sinning right there. And that's what happens. They go right out in front of Moses. One of the leaders takes the leading priestess, takes him into his tent, and he says, if anybody is for me and for the Lord, grab a sword and start killing your brothers and sisters. And the Levites do that. That's why God separates the Levites away from them. And Phineas sees what's going on. This plague starts going and happening. The Israelites are dying. They're just, it's taking them out. Phineas grabs a spear and he sees that guy go in with that girl and he runs the spear through the guy into the girl, kills them both. And because of the zeal that Phineas shows, 
God stops the plague. 24,000 people died that day from that plague. And they would all perished if it wasn't for the zeal of Aaron's grandson. Pretty amazing. So when God calls us out of the world to be his example, he takes it very seriously. And so should we. God pulled his people out. He says, I'm going to separate you from the world and I want you to set the example for the world and I'm going to show up in your presence. What are you going to do about that? And they decide to sin in his presence. So since God showed up so big, the punishment was so big. Okay? Happens a lot in the Old Testament. If we look at the first church in Acts, um, God says no to all these three practices, the mixed marriages, the uh, sacrifice idols, and sexual immorality. It says in Acts 15, 29, you must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, or from sexual immorality. It takes two of those anyway. And if you do this, you will do well. It says that to the Gentiles. It takes two of those practices. Those practices go over time. They're timeless practices that we need to continue to do. The second is it tolerated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Union with Christ is like a marriage relationship. We must remain faithful. We are the the bride in this this case. We are also the one that happens to be the harlot. We have red on our ledger all the time. And you know what the groom said? I'm okay with that. Matter of fact, I'm going to pay to clean your ledger by giving my son to be your groom and then pay the price for that. Isn't that pretty amazing? That's amazing to me. The church must remember that the union with Christ is like the marriage relationship and it should not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers or with the dark works of the world system. You look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 16, it says, Do not team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony, can, harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer become a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? Now, I will say this with the premise that if you become a believer after you're married, God says you should remain in that union if the other partner wants to remain in that union. Okay? It says you will bring your partner to Christ by your belief. But he says if you are a Christian beforehand and your partner is not a Christian, there should not, not be any partnership there. You shouldn't get into that relationship. You should get out before your heart gets in. Because we know if your heart gets in, it's hard getting out, isn't it? Like I tell the kids, I told them last Valentine's Day, we had this discussion, and I said, if your heart is in, if you give them your heart, 
your body is soon to follow. If you give them your heart, your body's soon to follow. So if a young man or a young woman is consumed by that person and they're like, oh, this is, this is the one, this is who he, he, she, he, see, she says she is, sex is soon to follow, put it plainly. That's dangerous. Guard your heart. The Lord says, guard your heart. There's a reason for it. Jesus Christ is coming back to separate us out his remnant. We are accountable for our actions. We must truly evaluate our daily walks so we can be counted worthy to be called children of God. Verse 16, repent of your sin and I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Some of the solution, some of the evaluation process is to admit that we are sinners, to repent, surrender your heart, surrender your life, surrender your sin to the Lord. True repentance, it takes three things, contrition of heart, confession of sin, and a change in conduct. Change your mind, change your heart, change your lifestyle. That's what Pastor Dave used to always say. It's very good. If the Lord does not see true repentance, he will fight against you. The Lord will not tolerate compromise in the church, nor in the believer. He will fight against sin at all costs with the sword of his mouth, with God's word. That is the standard by which we live. And when we disobey it, in a rebellious nature, meaning that we know it's wrong, but we're going to keep doing it anyways because it feels good, God's word will stand against you, and you will not be able to walk forward until that is resolved with the Lord. Remember, Christ Jesus is coming back to separate out his remnant. We are accountable for our actions. We must truly evaluate our daily walks so we will be counted worthy to be called children of God. The last verse Verse 17, it's nearly a paragraph. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that I have hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. To the faithful, to the faithful, to the overcomers. First, they will be given hidden manna, verse 17, to eat. This is a reference to when they came out of Egypt. Christ calls us to be separate from this world. He is our provision. He will give us the spiritual manna that we need. The church should not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. nor the dark works of this world system. This is why we guard our faith and our doctrine closely. We do not compromise the word of God here at White Rose. We find out what it says, and then we put it into practice. We don't say, oh, it's, we're not supposed to have sexual immorality. Oh, except for when Chuck sleeps with somebody else, then it's okay because he's an elder. No, no, it's not okay. It's wrong. It will always be wrong. And just because the culture says it's right, 
doesn't make it right. Just because somebody else is doing a sin doesn't mean you get to do your sin. The biggest argument for homosexuality in the church today is, well, we see promiscuity in, promiscuity in the church right now. We see adultery happen all the time. How come you don't get down on them? Well, I'm getting down on them right now, okay? Sexual immorality is wrong in all forms, in pornography, in uh, soliciting women, in using things that you're not supposed to do. It is wrong, and God is calling you to repentance. He is calling me to repentance. Homosexuality is wrong. Do we have a loving God? Absolutely. And because we have a loving God, he has a standard by which we should live. And if we don't measure up, which we never do, he also comes in with a rescue plan, doesn't he? And he can renew our mind. He can renew our heart. And our lifestyle will reflect him. Praise God. The second is we need to be faithful believers, and we're promised a white stone in verse 17, is a reference to judgment. We are all going to be judged by the Son, by Jesus Christ. Those who resist the world and its temptation, the white stones, that means that we have found righteousness in his sight. Therefore, we're justified to go to heaven. Praise God, right? I We, we were talking about um, John chapter 16, in community Bible study, verses uh, it starts in eight, and I think it goes through through eleven. And I had it in here, and it um, it didn't get updated on this particular. So I'll do my best. It talks about three forms of that. I got my Bible right here. Let's just open to that. John sixteen, verse eight is where we're going. This is really important because we talked about this on Thursday as well. It says an advocate will come, and it's talking about the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, this is verse 8, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. So three things. He will convict the world of sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. So God's presented himself, and they refuse God. They refuse Jesus. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father. In spite of being rejected, he still goes to the Father as our advocate and says, I want these people. I want this remnant. I want them to be with us. What can I do? And he says, the Father and you will go and we'll see no more, no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Who got judged? Everybody gets judged, right? Who got judged first? Jesus Christ got judged first. Jesus Christ took all the sins of the world, put it on his back, took it to the cross, and wiped it out for you and for me because Satan tricked us into sinning in the first place, right? Now Satan stands condemned. Now those, we all stand condemned in our sins, but we have a way out. We have a hope. 
We have a white stone. It's available to us if we choose it by surrendering to Jesus Christ. And when we surrender, we can walk through that. I call this the front side of grace. Why? Because we have three things there. It says, it convicts the world of sin. We realize that we're sinners. And then he provides a way to God's righteousness. And um, there is a coming judgment. We realize that the coming judgment is come. We have to do something about that in our lives. We have to surrender to Jesus Christ. And then we have salvation, right? That's that process right there in Romans. We talked about it. It's called justification, right? When we're justified in Christ, we know we are his. We come to the point of salvation. When we hit salvation, the journey doesn't stop there, does it, folks? We walk in sanctification. We're always continuing to try to be more holy, to be like Jesus. Now I'll get off my soapbox and finish up my sermons. Fortunately, it's only about a paragraph. Third, believers are given on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one given it. Jesus will know it, and we'll know it. And that's it. We're unique. The creator of the universe, of this galaxy, of this world, of this person, he knows my heart. He knows where I stand in regards to him. Isn't that awesome? He's going to write on my heart a unique name that makes, makes it mean. We, we were talking about this a few years ago, um, names today. They got to have a certain name so it's, it, they're unique. They want to be unique. Well, where do they get that? They get that from God's word. They want to be unique to a heavenly father. They just don't realize it yet. Because Jesus Christ, he is coming back, isn't he? And he's going to separate us out. His remnant is our choice. We are accountable for our actions. We must truly evaluate our daily walk so we'll be accounted worthy to be called a child of God. Let's pray. As I pray, as the elders come forward, please, so we can take communion. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would forgive us when we put ourselves before you. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us because we want what we want, and we want it now. Lord, give us patience. Give us kindness. Give us self-control. Against these things, there's no, there's no law because they're of you. Allow us to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart, Lord. We thank you for this body of believers. We thank you for who you've called us to be and what you've called us to. Guide and direct us, Lord. Lead us and protect us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1 Corinthians chapter 11, we find these words in verse 22. So, for what I pass, I pass on to what I receive from the Lord. On, on the night when we, he was betrayed, 